I'm Jake Thompson, and this is the Better Than Yesterday podcast. Welcome to episode two, uh, the episode that took way, way too long to bring you guys. A number of these early episodes I'd recorded back in the spring and summer, and guilty as charged, I made excuses of why we weren't ready to launch. And so now, in December, we're launching them all. We're coming out of the gate, we're firing, we're giving you all the podcast, all the great content that I've been sitting on, man, we're not sitting on anymore, and I'm getting out and giving to you. Today is a special episode. I get to sit down with a longtime friend, Kyle Cermak, and talk about his years struggling with alcoholism and really how that journey almost ruined his family, his career, and his life. And so we get into the just deep, dark past that Kyle had and what eventually woke him up and really today how he handles day-to-day his focus on his family, his future, and what's most important to him. There's incredible value packed into today's episode that provides you with a new perspective on how to look at your day-to-day journey while keeping your focus on the bigger picture. So without further ado, let me welcome to the show, Kyle Cermak. I'm good, Jake. How are you, man? Man, doing well. Appreciate you joining today. I know we want to dive into your journey and your story of overcoming struggles and adversity to really build a successful life. And so the, the whole premise of the show and, and everything we talk about, as the listeners know, is, is about using our setbacks and failures to fuel future successes. And some of our failures and setbacks look very different than others. Uh, but but kind of before we dive into the real depths of your story, give us a, a quick 20, 30 second overview, who you are, where you're from, a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Kyle Cermak's my name. Uh, 38 years old and I've got I'm married. I've got two daughters. Uh, we live in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, uh, but I actually am a transplant. I grew up in the, uh, DFW Plex in Texas in a little town called Grapevine, uh, born and raised Texan. And then, uh, met my wife a little bit over a decade ago and she drugged me here kicking and screaming and we've been here ever since. It's usually how that works out. They kind of influence where you live, what you do, whether we, we like it sometimes or not. Yeah, the, the power of female persuasion is real, so I'm, I'm living proof of that. Now, you've lived all over, though, as we've talked about. You've gone to school in, in Alabama and, and kind mm-hmm. of across the gamut. Where all have you been, lived, spent some time? Oh, man. Uh, I've been pretty fortunate to have traveled a lot. So, uh, again, grew up in Texas. Uh, I got my bachelor's degree at the University of Oklahoma, uh, moved back to Texas to work for a while, and then decided to pursue my master's degree. Uh, that took me to Tuscaloosa, Alabama, got my uh, MBA there. And then um, after that was through really, uh, I'd always loved music, uh, wanted to uh, pursue that as hopefully a career. Uh, got into a band. We toured probably about 40% of the U.S. Um, over the course of about a year and a half. So most of the southeastern United States, the East Coast, in uh, large parts of the Midwest. So, you know, there's I, I've probably been to and spent some time in about 30 or 35 states. So, um, 
you know, we've been been really lucky to see a good part of the country and uh, hopefully in the future get out and see a little more of the world. Okay, and so how long have you been out of the music scene playing and, and what uh, transitioned you out of that? Well, uh, it, to be honest, it had just kind of run its course. I was in my mid-20s, um, you know, all my friends were pursuing careers and you know, having these great jobs and buying houses and starting families and getting married. And, um, you know, I had two degrees and still felt like I was living on ramen noodles trying to chase a chase a dream. So, um, you know, and I, I was lucky that I had gotten to do pretty much everything I wanted to do in that uh, chapter of my life. Uh, it was kind of nice to get some wanderlust out of the way and see a lot of the country and play music and meet a lot of cool people. Um, and I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do that if I hadn't done it, but it just kind of, um, you know, felt like it was time to, to move into a new phase of life. And, and, um, I was, I think probably around 25 when that, um, that chapter of my life ended. Awesome. So let's kind of dive into, to really, as you said, you wanted the nitty gritty discussion. Um, you've been sober now for how many years? Uh, coming up on five years. Yeah. Awesome. And, and take me back to, if you want to, as much as you can go into, kind of what started, obviously, the, the darker path um, and, and what eventually started leading you out to a more sober lifestyle and, and obviously a very different lifestyle that you now live. Yeah, I mean, I think the roots of addiction go back a long, long way. Um, most Most people's experience, I think, doesn't vary too much from that. So for me... Uh, you know, I think it kind of started, the seeds were there from a young age. So I grew up, I would say, kind of as a latchkey kid. Um, so I took the bus to school every day. I literally had the key around my neck with a piece of string. Um, you know, I'd get home from school around 3.30 and both my parents worked. So I would be alone for, you know, three or four hours a day, just kind of, you know, doing whatever I wanted to do. Um, so, you know, what I started formulating in terms of ideas was that um, what I saw on television was was a normal life. So watched a lot of Yo! MTV raps, watched a lot of afternoon tween sitcoms of Say by the Bell and cartoons and all these things. And, um, you know, really started developing this idea that, um, you know, that was more what real life was about. Being really connected with people, um, you know, everything you needed was kind of at your fingertips and, it, and it, it, you know, being kind of famous or having some level of notoriety was was a way out of just, um, you know, we, we didn't have much growing up. I wouldn't say that we were poor, uh, but we were probably on the lower end of middle class. And the town that I grew up in in Texas as well, there's literally divided by railroad tracks. And we were on the opposite side of the track. So I grew up also seeing a lot of people that had very, very affluent wealth. Um, you know, these huge houses, cars, name brand clothing, you know, things that I could only dream about having. Um, and I just felt really disconnected from people in general. Uh, and so my, you know, from again, from a very young age, the idea became, you know, I've got to uh, get out and achieve. Uh, I've got to do big things. I've got to do everything really, really big. Um you know, I've got to have the big house. I've got to have the big car. I've got to have the name brand clothes and all those things. Because what I thought I saw was that when these people had all those things, they were really, really happy. Um, so being really popular at school became very important. Playing sports uh, was really important. Being really, really good at sports was important. 
because uh, that to me seemed like a way out. And, uh, and then music was also kind of a part of that because that was, uh, to be honest with you, kind of my backup plan. So if I got injured at sports, then I could just, you know, be a rock star, right? Really easy career path. <laughs> so, um, and, and then, you know, just kind of spent a lot of time alone and, and, uh, you know, didn't, you know, family wasn't very close. Uh, so, you know, trying to find ways to fill the voids of like connections with people was really where my adolescence was spent. Um, my dad ended up dying when I was 17 and that really changed the game for our family. So from that moment forward, uh, I, ba- I was basically on my own and, um, you know, moved out at 17, got a job, uh, was still playing baseball, you know, and, and honestly, at that point I hadn't really done anything I would consider like wrong. Uh, I hadn't tried drugs, hadn't drank a drop of alcohol. And then summer, uh, after my senior year in high school, right before I was going to go out to college, I uh, went to a party and, uh, decided to drink alcohol for the first time. And so uh, a friend of mine at the time, we opened a handle of Tangeray gin and uh, we, uh, gosh, we probably took 10 shots in under five minutes. You know, I didn't know what I was doing and uh, we got just blackout drunk, super sick. Uh, he looked at me and said, I'm never drinking again. I looked at him and said, you're a fool. I'm, I, this is what's been missing. And uh, went downstairs and, you know, my, that's when it started for me. And probably from that um, age 18 until, you know, I got sober, I, I was drunk probably every single day uh, from that moment forward. And, um, and how old are you now? Uh, I'm 38. So from 18 to 33, I was drunk pretty much every single day. So for 15 years. And how did you manage? So obviously that mm-hmm. was you were going through school at that time. You were, sure. you were playing in your band and traveling. And what type of what type of band? What type of music genre were y'all? Uh, really heavy metal. Yeah, um, you know, not much, not much melody to it. A lot of screaming, very angry music. And I think it really was, you know, again, just that season of life. Um, you did, know, it, I, did it obviously impact how you could play, how you could perform, or were you, did you get to, by that point, pretty good at hiding it? No, I mean, I think it was a nice place to hide the problem, to be honest with you, because everybody around me was doing the same types of things. Um, you know, drugs, alcohol, these were very, very normal parts of that culture. And so... You know, you could drink to excess and do really idiotic things and get into fights and cause problems and break the law and, you know, get arrested. And, and it was just kind of part of like, you know, quote unquote, rock and roll. And uh, I had completely given up any concerns related to athletic activity or wellness. Um, you know, it was literally just about, you know, drinking and partying and playing music and doing just enough to kind of get by. And in college, um you know, I worked, uh, put myself through school, you know, I pledged a fraternity cause that seemed like a place to get a lot of alcohol for free, to be honest with you. Uh, and it, and it was, but I could, if you asked me today, I was so, uh, consumed with substance abuse in college. A, it's a miracle. I even passed and got a degree. And the second piece is I couldn't tell you one person in my fraternity's name because I was so blackout drunk all the time on like 
you know, basically from Wednesday through Sunday. I, I have no idea. I've met people that I went to OU with that remember me, and I, I couldn't tell you their names. I mean, that's how bad it was. But uh, again, my my story that I would tell myself was that you know this is what everybody's doing in college. Everybody's partying this hard, and uh, you know, and that in hindsight that wasn't the case. But I, you know, my my way of kind of ignoring that I had a problem was to inject myself into these environments where um, substance abuse was um, very high, or the appearance of it was. So it seemed more normal than problematic to me. Um, I mean, really, like there are, like my sophomore year of college, I don't remember any of it. I have no idea what classes I took. It's it was it was that crazy at that point in my life, and it just continued to kind of get worse. So you went through college. You had your your years with the band, and so mm-hmm. it sounds like you finished around twenty eight playing in the band. You still had about five years uh, struggling with the addiction before you started yeah, getting sober. Yeah, it was probably 25 was when I stopped doing music um, and then, you know, worked and then tried to, like, get a real career. Um, I was in sales for a while, which was a good fit, again, with the substance abuse because I had to take people out to eat and drink all the time. Um, So, again, it wasn't, you know, it didn't seem unnormal to me uh, to be doing these things all the time, but you know, at the same time, you know, was really devoid of having any meaningful relationships, just had a lot of like drinking buddies. Um, you know, but I couldn't really tell you much about their lives or families or their interests, you know, and they probably couldn't tell you that much about mine. It was just kind of like a marriage of convenience with a lot of social situations just because, you know, we could uh, continue to drink. And, and when I say drink, just to give you an idea, um, I'm, would would be what I would consider more of a functional alcoholic. So I wouldn't wake up in the morning and start drinking right away. Um, you know, I would wake up, I would do just kind of a normal everyday guy routine and eat breakfast, get dressed, go to work, uh, you know, perform normal at the work day, um, you know, fighting and battling a hangover as best I could, was kind of a high achiever on the sales side. Um, and then, you know, would get done with work and between, you know, let's say 5.30 p.m. and about midnight every day. Uh, I would drink constantly for those seven hours. Um, you know, uh, lots of whiskey, lots of beer, you know, anything I could get my hands on, I would, I would do. Um, and the other piece of the pie that started happening later in the drinking career, uh, was that I would get, um, like I would get high on rage. I don't know if that makes much sense, but I'll try to explain it the best I can is that I would get into these, uh, really embattled situations with people, relationships, girls, you name it. Um, and I would get an adrenaline rush from the arguments or fights or whatever I would be in. And that would kind of sober me up a little bit so I could, I could continue to drink. So it was like, a, almost like adrenaline became self-medicating to sober me up a little bit so I could drink for a few more hours um, you know, and if that didn't work, then, then, um, you know, obviously if there were some drugs available that could help that I was, you know, happy to, happy to take those at that time. Um, so yeah, it was pretty, <laughs> pretty depraved, but ironically it was just, I was around a lot of people doing what I thought were similar things. So it didn't seem abnormal to me at the time. So at what point was kind of your, your rock bottom wake up call 
where you realized things had to change or you needed to start looking at maybe there was a different way to live? Sure. Um, so after I quit music uh, a couple of years go by, um, I, I'd met my wife. She, uh, your, your alma mater, this is Christian University. And, you know, we met kind of a world romance. Um, you know, she was still in college at the time. So, again, the drinking fit in the pattern of the social situations that we would be in because, you know, there were college students partying a lot, and, and that, that suited me. Uh, when we moved to Tulsa, um, you know, I, I went through a period of super dark depression. Really didn't like it here when we first moved here. Uh, you know, it, it felt like a bad, you know, bad dream. Um, you know, really had a hard time assimilating to living somewhere else other than where I, what I knew. Uh, despite, you know, all my travels, it was really tough to uproot to that degree. And then, um, you know, a couple of years went by, uh, we were, she got pregnant, we lost that first baby. Um, and that to me just kind of felt like, you know, this, this life deal probably isn't a good thing for me to continue to do. And so at that point I had kind of crafted in my head, this two year plan to, uh, commit suicide. <laughs> and, uh, what it was, was that I was going to get it's crazy to say this out loud, but what happened was I, I planned on getting a series of life insurance policies and then kind of slowly drinking myself to death uh, over a course of two years. That way, Jessica, my wife, could be taken care of financially, um, and then I could just get out of like living this life that I had created, this kind of internal hell of just you know being depressed, very suicidal, not wanting to be around anymore, you know, and the only thing that would comfort me would be, would be substances. Um, so, you know, it, it was pretty, again, very, it just continued to get worse and worse. And then rock bottom to, to kind of home run to your question, we had, uh, two big blessings. My two daughters, uh, were back to back. They're only 13 months apart. Uh, and they told us we would never have children again after we lost the first baby. So it was really kind of a, uh, surprise, you know, with the depths of addiction that I had, and I'm just going to be really honest with this. It felt like an interruption to the the plan that I had put together. That's how sick I was, Jake. Um, you know, having children, what, what I wanted, uh, interrupted actually this other plan that I had created to kind of not live anymore. Um, so the girls were probably about three and two at the time. Um, we had just bought uh, a new house it was basically a gigantic, I'm sorry to my wife for a two week bender that I had been on. And, um, so we got in a massive argument about my, my drinking, uh, which, you know, was, wasn't the first time that had happened. And, um, you know, I had just decided that this is, this is it for me. I'm going to, this is the last night I'm going to be on the face of the earth and uh, just an absolute terror, scorched earth policy called a lot of people that I know, told them what I quote unquote really thought about them. Um, you know, told them what I was going to do. Um, you know, got into some vicious phone conversations with Jessica over the course of this night. Um, you know, ended up somehow coming home. Uh, she and I got into it. Um, I, in my maniacal state, got physical with her. Uh, thank God she called the police and, um, they came and arrested me. Uh, when I came to in jail, uh, I had no idea why I was there. I didn't recollect 
any of those details I just explained to you because they've been told to me third hand and that's how uh, blackout drunk that I was. When they found my car, there were three empty bottles of Jack Daniels and an empty 18 pack. So that's about as much as I had consumed in alcohol that night. And um, so I thought I was in jail for DUI or DWI or public intox or something. And it wouldn't have been the first time that that had happened. Um, so when they called me into the sentencing hearing uh, and to read me my charges, they said that I was in jail for uh, domestic assault and battery in the presence of minor children. And my first reaction to that was, there has to be some sort of mistake. And I repeated my name to the judge. She goes, no, that's, that's what's going on. And uh, I was stunned. Uh, and that's, that moment changed my life because I realized that uh, I didn't have anybody to call anymore. I didn't have anyone anymore because the one person I would call in trouble, my wife, I couldn't do that. So I was absolutely, you know, again, coming back to where all this started, you know, that, that strong desire to just have fame and have notoriety and to have millions of people adore every single move that I did, you know, with this giant ego that I had somehow fashioned all came crashing down because at that moment I realized I literally have no one. I don't have anything. And uh, I remember I found a pencilette in a bunk in my cell and I was trying to do the math on how long I would have to be in jail to pay down my, my bail. Um, you know, I mean, I, I mean, just really desperate kind of thoughts on like, okay, how do I get like free and fix this? Um, you know, miracle of miracles, a buddy's dad saw my name come across the wire. He's an attorney. And uh, they called my wife. She explained to them what happened. And they came down. Uh, my, my buddy and his dad came down and got me out of jail. Um, they said, you know, what are you going to do to get this thing fixed up? And I said, I'll do, you know, I'll do whatever it takes. I said, I don't know if my marriage is reconcilable, but I need to try to, like, learn how to be a dad and, um, you know, figure out how to be a grown man. And uh, I said, I'll do whatever it takes. So their suggestion to me was that I could stay with them and pursue a, a rehabilitation program and try to get sober. Um, you know, and, and even then, Jake, my, my thought was I don't have a drinking problem. I have a depression problem. Really, that's what I thought was wrong. And, um, you know, it turns out that I was wrong about that. And, uh, you know, I, they took me, they got me out of jail. They took me to their house. Um, I slept for a while. And when I woke up the next day, I cannot describe to you the feeling of sickness, physical sickness that came over me because I find I just begun detoxing. And um, I remember just sitting there trying to take a shower and I, I couldn't control any of my faculties, um, you know, just just very, very sick. And uh, I remember looking in a mirror in the bathroom that I was in and going, you know, this is like, this is hell. This is what hell feels like. You have no, no one. You have none of your resources. You don't know if you've got a job anymore. You don't know if you have a family anymore. You don't even, you know, what you're going through right now might kill you um, physically. And uh, that, that 36 hour period was, was it for me. And, um, you know, I, I had ne I've never looked back since. I've never relapsed. That was the last day I drank. Uh, I chewed tobacco for years. I quit that the same day, and I've never, obviously, never done drugs as well. So that uh, kind of hellacious period on the end of my, uh, you know, 18-year drinking career was uh, 
was the moment their 15 year drinking career was the moment that really just brought it, brought it to an end. And I uh, went through rehab. Uh, it took about three months. I really had no hopes that uh, my wife would ever reconcile a marriage with me. I'm happy to say we're still married and, um, you know, it took a lot of work, but you know, it's, it's been, uh, it's been quite a process, man. So let's, I, I want to dive a little bit into the journey back up and out. And so sure. talk, I would love to learn what patterns, behavior patterns, things you started to, to recognize and then develop positive behavior patterns while at rehab. And, and obviously many of those probably have carried on the years since, but you know, it obviously sounds like when you went into rehab, you had to re refocus everything. You had to get a fresh perspective on what was actually the problem. And then how do I change this behavior going forward so that when I'm out of rehab and I have that, that thirst, that, you know, appetite for something, how do I, how do I change that? How do I correct that behavior? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I, I, you know, anything that you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, and I don't care if it's um, running a company, being a parent, or being an addict, you're going to have patterns to your behaviors. You're going to have things that you do that feel successful or feel like the right things to do because a, maybe they're comfortable, maybe they've proven some results in the past, whatever you've got. So that process of getting sober for me was looking at patterns of behavior. Okay, why, what do I associate certain things with certain reactions to, right? And I figured out for me that uh, fear was a huge uh, component of what I needed to change. So I talked earlier about, um, you know, really wanting to have this kind of fame and notoriety and, and, and infamy about who I was and what I was doing uh, with my life. What that really kind of came back to for me was learning that I was actually deathly afraid of being close to anybody and then really like uh, finding out who I was, you know? And so what rehab forced me to do was get really raw and open up about who I really was and what I really thought and how I really saw myself. Once I could kind of break those walls down, I could get into new patterns of behavior because I didn't have anything to hide anymore. Um, I was completely exposed and um, I, I didn't have any choice. It's kind of like that dream about, uh, you know, I, I'm giving a speech naked in front of a thousand people. That's really kind of what it felt like, but it was very freeing for me to, let go of those patterns of behavior of thinking, okay, I've got to keep up all of these facades, um, you know, in order to get love and acceptance. And what I found was that the more authentic I could be, the more love and acceptance was available to me. And I just had to reciprocate those feelings to people. So that was the first uh, behavioral change I had to make was to realize that if you want to get and receive love and acceptance, authenticity from people, you have got to first be willing to get out there and put love and acceptance, compassion and authenticity to everybody else in the world. Because the only things I can really control are my behaviors and actions. And if I look at people with empathy and compassion and really try to connect with them on a deep level and go, you know, you're just doing everything you know to do to live the best life possible. If I look at people through that lens, I find that uh, what I've wanted all along to feel connected with people is just available to me in abundance. So that was the first piece of the puzzle for me. The second thing was to realize that 
substance abuse, in my opinion, and this isn't shared universally, but I think it's just a symptom of a much larger problem. And we use things to medicate. So like you have a headache, you take some Advil, the headache hopefully goes away. Uh, you have a broken bone, they put a cast on it, they give you some pain medicine, the pain goes away, the bone heals in the cast, right? So you've got the process to get well. Uh, substance abuse is different because the root problem isn't just one thing, right? I don't get drunk all the time because I like it. I get drunk because I don't like other things about my life or I don't like other things about me. And so it's kind of a form of self-medication. So I had to learn how to medicate through other means. So what I learned through that, the patterns of behavior I had to change was uh, one, I had to develop some sort of spiritual base uh, because alcohol kind of and drugs served as kind of a higher power, right? They were what I turned to to get fulfillment when I felt low. Uh, so I had to change that into what does my spiritual base need to look like? What do I turn to when I need a, a support or a high or uh, that feeling of connection? And, and for me, that's been my, my faith, my faith in God. Um, and I didn't know, again, I didn't know that was available. You know, I had talked a lot about, you know, God and Christianity and these things at times in my life, just, you know, but I didn't know what it was. You know, I didn't really understand what having a spiritual life meant. Um, you know, and that, that worked for me and I don't know if Christianity and, uh, you know, uh, getting saved and all these things might be the universal answer, but I will say that it's very important for people to find some sort of spiritual base, whether that's meditation or, uh, some sort of higher power, uh, I think is important because, you know, it gives you a sense that the world is a bigger place than just yourself, but you're also connected to that bigger, a uh, bigger piece of picture of the world. And then the last thing was that, um, you know, I'd abused my body to points, uh, you know, that I, I are hard to even fathom today. And um, so the, the last thing was like, okay, how do I get physically healthy? Uh, because, you know, that connects to the first two pieces. If my body feels good, my heart and mind are going to function well also. Um, and so I was probably about 60 pounds heavier than I am right now when I came out of rehab. Um, you know, because the, the funny thing is when you come off substances, you, you maniacally crave sugar. Uh, so I think I probably kept little Debbie in business for about three months, uh, for the first, first few elements of, of, you know, being sober because I just wanted sugar and cookies and, and things like that all the time. And your girls weren't yeah. selling Girl Scout cookies yet. Not yet, but man, I would have, uh, they would have hit their quota with me alone. Probably. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was, it was, you know, again, un uh, you know, unintended effects of that, but it was just where, where, where I was, um, you know, especially trying to basically quit three things at once between the, uh, the chewing tobacco, the drugs and, and predominantly the alcohol, which has an incredible amount of sugar in it. My body was still craving that sugar content and found it in food. So, um, I, I needed to start thinking about physically how I was taking care of myself. And fortunately for me, that's where uh, CrossFit uh, entered my life. And so you've been CrossFitting now how many years? Uh, just over four years. And, and we've talked, you're, you're there in Tulsa. Mm -hmm. uh, that's actually how we got connected with Compete, was through kind of the CrossFit community. 
There's a group out of, I believe, Utah that you've talked to, you've done some work that do work, a little bit of work in this space of merging fitness with sobriety and rehab. Are you still involved with them? And if you can, share a little bit about them. Yeah, I, I, I need to connect more with them, to be honest with you. But I, philanthropy work's become really important to me the last few years. And this organization's called Fit to Recover. Uh, what they do is they take people that are coming out of rehab, trying to get sober off drugs and alcohol, and uh, they provide a place for them to have all three things that I just talked to you about. So they have a, a social connection with the community there, which is super important. Uh, they have a spiritual connection in terms of the program that they try to run uh, that that's accessible for all people. You don't necessarily have to be a Christian per se to have a spiritual connection, and they support whatever anybody believes as long as they can find it. And then the last piece is they provide uh, various fitness avenues for people to get healthy, and they have rules for that. You have to be sober uh, 24 hours prior to coming to the gym, uh, you know, so you can't come in there intoxicated and damage anybody else's recovery. Um, you know, they have ways of expecting people's behaviors that should, uh, you know, kind of nourish their recovery. And it, it's a really cool thing. And, and, um, you know, I've really tried to explore some more ways to, um, look at those types of programs here in Tulsa. Nothing's really stuck yet, but those guys, if anybody's doing it right, they are cause they're hitting all three, the, the spiritual, the mental and the, and the physical. So let's flash forward to today, right now where you are, Kyle. What yep. what does your day look like in terms of not, let's take out the work, let's take out a meeting with the family, just you. What does your morning routine look like? What does your day look like so that you stay within this healthy balance, this healthy lines of the man that you're striving daily to become? Sure, yeah. You know, just feed, feeding those feeding those same three avenues. So the first thing I do in the morning, uh, aside from, from brushing my teeth is, is I, I get up, I put on a pot of coffee and I sit down and I read a, a devotional and I read my Bible. Um, you know, I do it for about 15 minutes. You know, it's, it's just a nice way for me to, again, to get that spiritual side nourished and connect with, uh, with something a little bit bigger than myself. If someone didn't you know, want to, uh, you know, that didn't speak to them, you know, as far as the spiritual side goes, you know, you could, uh, you know, meditate for 15, 20 minutes. You could, um, you know, just sit down and kind of think about all the things that you have gratitude for, um, you know, anything along those lines, I think first thing in the morning to get centered and, and realize that you've got a lot going on in your life. That's positive. That's the best way. I think I start my day. Um, after that, I'll eat a small breakfast and then I'll go train. So I like to train about six days a week and I usually, um, you know, do it for about two hours. And, um, you know, I, I, again, I'm an addict, so I've had delusions of grandeur about, you know, making the CrossFit games and doing all these things. And, and you know, the reality of it is today is I, I just really enjoy the process. And um, I find that I'm more content and I enjoy it more when I'm just kind of in the middle of the process. And I don't have any necessarily any end game to it, but I just go, you know, this is good for me because it perpetuates my health. And, um, you know, when I think about competing, uh, you know, uh, on a day to day basis, it's I'm trying to compete to just stay sober. Right. And, and to be able to do that, I've got to three, feed those three avenues. So, you know, I cover the spiritual part at the start of the day. Right after that, I get into the physical part that keeps my body healthy. Uh, and it's a lot of work to stay healthy after all the abuse that I've put it through. 
And then the last piece is just, um, you know, really trying to have a very structured day. I try to compartmentalize my time pretty well throughout the day. So, you know, I've got the work component. And when I'm doing that, I don't let uh, anything outside come and interfere with that. Uh, when I've got the fitness component in the morning, those are my two hours. The phone is off. I'm completely focused on that side. Uh, when I'm with my kids, my kids are the number one priority at that time. I don't let anything get in the way of that being my focus. When I'm with my wife, same thing. And I've found for me that kind of looking at my day is like a, a pie that I've got only so much time to divvy up. Uh, that I've got to compartmentalize it. And that helps me stay really, really focused on the, what I'm doing rather than let my mind wander and go, you know, what would it be like right now if I had a glass of wine? Like, which never makes sense because I never drank wine. But, you know, there have been times where I've let my schedule go and those thoughts start creeping in. And I go, okay, what's, what's problematic here is that I don't have that structure that I need. Uh, and I'm getting disconnected from my priorities. So, like I said, if I get I get the spiritual started, the physical going, and then for the rest of the day, I'm pretty compartmentalized on on what I need to do. And you know, I take a lot of pleasure in just honestly, man, like doing dishes and and doing the laundry and contributing to our house. Because for a long, long time, like Jess didn't she didn't have any support on on that. She was kind of a single parent with this drunk guy that passed out on the couch all the time. And um, you know, I was kind of more of a roommate than a husband to her. So doing that kind of uh, you know, day-to-day quote-unquote mundane stuff is actually really pleasing to me because I, I'm really excited to be able to contribute to the betterment of our family. And I didn't think that that was available to me, um, you know, five, six years ago. So that, that's, it's, it's a real simple life, man, but I get, I get a lot of great pleasure out of it. And the last thing I try to do every day, really important to me is to hopefully be of service to someone. Uh, and what that looks like for me is I either can connect people with something that can help uh, them achieve more and be greater and, and find the life they're looking for, or it can be simply as, um, you know, I've even at times just gone through my phone, looked at contacts and been like, you know what, I haven't complimented that person in a while. And I'll send them a text and just say something nice that I think about them. And I try to do something like that literally every single day. Uh, because again, it shows that compassion, that empathy, and that uh, desire to connect with people on a deeper level than it was when I was doing drugs and alcohol. I love that. And the one thing that I love most about your story is that, you know, it wasn't over. Like you went through your twenties. Most people get to their thirties. And as we've discussed, like life's just beginning at 30. You know, most people have the meltdown when they, they turn the three Oh, um, yeah. But it's never too late, whether that's at 30, 33, 45, 55, you always have that opportunity to flip the script on your story and finish it how you want, which is something that you've you've done a fantastic job of doing and starting down the path of the legacy and story you want to leave behind. Um, as we kind of get ready to close, I want to talk about something you and I had the opportunity to chat about, about your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. 60s. Just for anyone listening, I know we've got a young audience. Uh, because of Compete, we've got people in their 30s. We have some in their 40s and 50s. But just to remind them of, of kind of each stage in life and, and that it looks different for everyone, but there's opportunities to, to recover from any setbacks in that life. Yeah, I mean, we live several lives. I mean, I've lived like, I feel like several lifetimes. And, uh, 
you know, when you look at it by decade, it's kind of a, a fun way to think about it. You know, and you, you come into your 20s, you get done with college, and, I, you know, I think your 20s, you're basically still a teenager, except now you have bills. You know, so you're trying to you're trying to build this life that you don't really understand. And everybody's telling you, you know, get a job and, you know, buy a house, get a car, all this stuff. And it's really, really complicated and they don't teach you any of it in school. Right. And then you throw on the back end of that, you're trying to figure out who you are, what you want to do. And, and it's just, it's a really tough time. And, um, you know, if you're lucky, I think you come through that pretty in control of where you want to go. Uh, I unfortunately wasn't one of those people, but I just remember my 20s feeling very chaotic, very devoid of direction, and I was just kind of throwing stuff against the wall to see what would stick. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be as extreme as my experience was, but I think a lot of people can relate to that, and that it's just a time to try different stuff, you know? And uh, I think it's a good time to explore and, and just do a bunch of different things in your 20s because you never know what can come out of just taking chances. And although, you know, sobriety happened for me in my 30s, I can still look back at periods in my 20s and go, man, I'm glad I traveled. I'm glad I did the music thing. I'm glad I, I went out of state to school, um, you know, because I, I uh, those are things that I experienced that nobody can take away from me. And I have the freedom to do them. Um, you know, in your 30s, I think you finally start getting some direction. You know, you might be married at that point. You get a family and you're really building your life. And I think the misnomer is that in your 30s, we have to have it all figured out. I would argue that in your 30s, you really need to start making the moves uh, that you need to have the life that you want to have. In my case, uh, you know, got the sobriety thing going, figured out what health and wellness need to look like for me, figured out what being a dad should be, what being a really good husband should be. Um, you know, and, and those things are ongoing journeys. So it, when I say that I got it figured out, it's not finalized. It's a, it's a continuing piece of evolution. So it's like, okay, this, that's really what this is about. Those lights started going off and I could follow those lights, um, at the end of the tunnel and then see what was on the other side. So it wasn't, uh, you know, people use that expression. Oh, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Isn't it's, it's a finite finish point. It's actually not, it's just illumination into what's, what's next to come. And so, you know, your thirties provide that direction for you. I think most people experience the highest levels of success in their career and with their family in their forties. They're building wealth, uh, not just financially, but in experience, in memories, um, in their marriage, um, you know, in their friendships and all these things, right? You, you finally got the stuff in place in your life. That's going to last you for the rest of your life, right? Your fifties are about just enjoying all of that between your forties, uh, your in college, you learn to develop friends with them. You're probably out friends with your wife. Uh, you probably got two or three buddies that you call once a week and you guys get together and it's just like you never, you know, it's just like old times. Your 60s, you're retiring and, you know, who knows where things take you from there. But it's the message for all those decades to me is that there's always something left to be done. And each piece of that be better than the last if you want it to be that way. And um, I think what we feel like is that we've got to accomplish a ton of stuff just for the sake of accomplishing it. But the resume of who you are as a man or woman to me is really surmised in how at peace are you at the end of what you accomplish? 
And if you got something done that you really wanted to do, like in my case with sobriety, I really needed to get sober for the sake of my life. Um, how at peace was I when I came to kind of the, uh, the apex of that process? I was pretty at peace. And that let me know that all that work was worth it because I felt happy with what I had done. And it wasn't like, all right, now I'm sober, that's over with. It was for the rest of my life. It is for the rest of my life. But I'm really at peace with that process. Uh, because I know what comes ahead is just going to be even better because I continue to keep my head up and my eyes forward. Um, and that's why I look forward to 40 and 50, um, 60 and so on, because I know it's just going to keep getting better in new and different ways that I haven't experienced yet as those decades come along, man. It's a, it's an exciting life now. Man, that's awesome. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing and Dude, thanks for just diving into your story a little bit. I, I know there's people out there listening, some maybe on that same journey that, that you were on in your 20s, uh, some maybe on similar journeys of addiction and can find some hope and inspiration in that. If someone wants to find you online, connect, follow your journey a little bit, where are you? Instagram, Facebook, or, you know, what are you out tweeting, doing whatever? Yeah, so I've got uh, Twitter and Instagram, not on Facebook, but my handle on both of those is the same. It's Kyle, Kyle is pretty rad, all one word. And uh, you can find out more than you ever wanted to know about 90s hip hop, sobriety, and fitness on both pages. So <laughs> come check me out. I, I can attest to that. I'll occasionally get an, <laughs> a text message every couple of weeks about an artist, a uh, new rap artist I've never heard of, or something with a throwback to the 90s. And Kyle's oh, yeah, got his playlist going for the day. Man, I enjoyed this. Absolutely. Thank you so incredibly much for joining. Uh, Jake, I'm honored uh, honored that you asked me to do it. And just one last thing. If anybody is struggling with addiction, you know, there's hope out there. There's reasons to live. And uh, it's a good life. I would encourage you to pursue it. Dude, love that. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Better Than Yesterday podcast. To connect further, visit betterthanyesterdaypodcast.com. You'll find contact information, resources, and content available to help you better compete every day for your life. We're excited to have you part of the community, and we look forward to serving you again next week.